Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am very happy to present to you a special podcast on the coup and counter-coup in Turkey. Late on Friday night, it was clear that something strange was happening in Turkey. The bridges in the Bosphorus were in Istanbul were, were blocked. In Ankara, fighter jets were flying overhead. People could hear the sound of gunfire. And shortly afterwards, the Prime Minister announced that a coup was taking place. But less than 12 hours later, the coup started to unravel and the Turkish president reasserted control of the country and pledged to rid it of the the virus that was infecting the state institutions. A few hours uh, further on and 8,000 police officers have been suspended, 6,000 people have been put in prison, thousands of judges have have been uh, taken out of their their roles and uh, the counter-coup seems to have quite a long way further to go. People are making comparisons between it and the Reichstag's fire in, uh, in, in Germany. I am very happy to have two brilliant people to help us make sense of it. One of them is Asla Aydin-Tashbash, who is ECFR's uh, Turkey expert. Uh, she's based in Istanbul, and it was in fact an, an email from her which first alerted me to the fact that something strange was going on on Friday night. Um, and she's been living through it uh, over the last few days, trying to make sense of, of what's happening. And in the studio with me is uh, Jeremy Shapiro, ECFR's research director. So Asla, why don't you start by telling us uh, what's going on, how it's felt the last uh, period of time. This is not the first coup, uh, not even the first failed coup to take place in Turkey. Hi, Mark. It's really it's strange to be sort of to find myself in the center of the news, whether it's bombing or a sudden agreement with Israel or a coup. I mean, Turkey is a fast moving country, but it had been a little bit too much last Friday. What happened last Friday was quite dramatic. And uh, basically, as you said, Friday night, this seems to have been prematurely executed coup. So in other words, a coup that was supposed to go into effect at a later date or maybe in the early hours of the morning, but somehow, and this is the reason it was foiled in the end, it, they did not really have all the units in order or they lost the messaging or they just couldn't execute their plans, but it was a real coup. And uh, basically uh, what happened was, uh, I think the Turkish intelligence got wind of it early on, late Friday afternoon, removed Erdogan from where he was, uh, and as, who was vacationing on the Mediterranean coast. Basically, the key point of the coup was a raid on that hotel Erdogan had been staying, and it with the intention of killing him. But uh, Friday night, 11, 12 hours of fighting and uh, bombing in places, serious fighting uh, between police and uh, military units, in some instances in Ankara and Istanbul, and basically all night air activity, fighter jets. The government was able to overpower, Erdogan was basically able to overpower and re- reinforce his, his rule uh, by using media. 
And it was very interesting because in the past, I mean, Turkey's coups in the 50s, 60s, in the 60s, 70 and 80 were all classic Latin American style coups, no resistance from the people. In 1997, it was called a postmodern coup, whereby the military exerted its influence behind the scenes and in meetings on an Islamist government, pushing them out of government, but no boots on the ground. But this was very much a retro kind of a coup, an old, old-fashioned coup with boots on the ground, soldiers taking control of bridges and everything. But it was almost too archaic, even as far as coups are concerned, because it left open, uh, you know, it had an entire medium of communication, Twitter, Internet, and TV networks in a very old-fashioned manner. They got a communique read on state television. Oops, but nobody watches state television in Turkey. There are 15 other news networks and hundreds of local and private networks. So the government was able to get on the air. But it was actually FaceTime that was, it was, it was an iPhone which undid this coup, wasn't it? It was an iPhone app which undid the coup through a private network that Erdogan had not been very happy about in the past and sort of was uh, pressuring uh, because they weren't exactly towing the government line before. So it was the free media that saved him in the end. So he, came, he went onto his iPhone and asked people to come out onto the streets to overpower the, the, the organisers of the coup. Is that, is that, was that the turning point? That was exactly the turning point. In terms of the military struggle... It had the government forces had not overpowered uh, the the uh, coup plotters, but Erdogan came out and said, "We're about to crush them. We've crushed them. I want you to all come out in defense, calling people on the streets." But not just that, minarets and mosques across the country. I believe eighty-five thousand mosques across the country were calling on jihad and calling up on supporters mostly heated by AKP base, I should say, but calling on people to get on the streets and resist the coup. The number of people that went out were not that many. It wasn't millions of people, but it was enough uh, to uh, create, to sort of shift the balance of power and create a psych- this sort of a psychological atmosphere that the coup was, um, was over. It was very interesting. And... Um- what happened next? Because um, once Erdogan had re-established control, it looked like either he had some very, very good detectives who were hard at work identifying all the people in the judiciary and the police force and the army who were involved, or maybe he had a list of people that he wanted to uh, to get rid of who he saw as, uh, as uh, troublemakers or uh, opponents of regime. Because there are quite a lot of people... Uh, put in prison, sacked, removed from office uh, in the hours after the the, the coup took place. Uh, there is an, an, an enormous witch hunt going on. It's impossible for us to tell whether or not this is all directed at coup plotters or is an overreach, whether this is based on intelligence or, par- or partly paranoia. But uh, certainly... Uh, the, gov- this, the government trying to survive and Erdogan trying to survive is not necessarily thinking of uh, sort of uh, legality of the dismissals, but you've named some of the figure, 8,000 police officers, 6,000 military, 100 generals, but uh, 30 governors, uh, many academics, and uh, many two constitutional court judges, etc., are, are arrested. So uh, I think that 
the coup, the post coup period is turning out to be uh, to be a political bloodletting of some sort. The government's assertion is that the coup was carried out by uh, followers of Fethullah Gulen, who's a U.S.-based uh, cleric and uh, had been an early ally of Erdogan until 2013-14, and then uh, they've had they had a falling out since then. He has followers within the judiciary, the police force, and bureaucracy, no doubt. But there's been purges of Gulenists within the government periodically over the past three years. So we have no way of telling whether the generals, 100 generals, basically a third of the generals within the Turkish army uh, are dismissed and arrested at this point. We have no way of telling whether they were all Gulenists. I suspect that the coup was far more, uh, the network was far bigger than just Gulenists. I, I suspect that there was an alliance between Gulenists, non-Gulenists, secularists. So I'd like to come to Jeremy soon to talk about some of the international reactions, but could you give us a bit more information about Fethullah Gulen, who's been this uh, weird shadowy figure who's been uh, hanging over Turkish politics for, for several decades now, and uh, is it at the epicenter of uh, millions of different conspiracy theories because the Gulen movement is, is uh, well, anyway, why don't you tell us about it? You're the expert. Well, the Gulen movement, as you say, it, it's not, it, it's somewhat opaque and um, it's also somewhat impossible to fully identify largely because it works on, it has different centers, concentric centers of loyalty. There is a hierarchical, uh, as with all Islamic sects, I know, there is a hierarchical inner core. But beyond that, it is uh, inspiration from Gulen sermons. It is, uh, the movement had been investing in education, but secular education for about four decades. So they have generations of people that have gone through Gulen schools whom they're mostly encouraging to go into government service. So you have a prosecutor who has been through a Gulen school or, for example, who has who's reading a publication close to Gulen, but is he a Gulenist? Is he following orders from Gulen? Is he not following? It's, these are very difficult questions. In terms of the numbers, we're not talking about we, 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 may, we may be talking about millions of people. We're not talking about 5% of the population. It's more likely 2-3% of the population, but concentrated in power centers within the bureaucracy, in intelligence, police intelligence, anti-terrorism units, and it turns out some in the military. Ironically, it was the alliance with Gulenists and, uh, and investigations in the military and before in between 2007 and 2013 that allowed AKP to purge Kemalists and hardline secularists from the military, from the police force and from government institutions and the judiciary and replace them with Gulenists. And uh, now uh, they are trying to, this was a big problem for the military uh, about a, until a few years ago because we had Thousands of people dismissed from the military, Alawites, secularists, and potential coup plotters, they were thought to be. And uh, the government did want Gulenists to replace those positions because AKP did not really have the human resources when they came to power. They had massive support and voters, but they did not have judges and prosecutors and whatnot. So they relied on Gulenists. And now, 
uh, they are there's a very bitter fight, and I think that uh, the purges against the Gulenists will not ease up. And what was it that caused uh, President Erdogan and and uh, uh, Fethullah Gulen to fall out? Because it's not brand new. This has been brewing for a couple of years. The the Gulenist newspaper Zaman got closed down by the government recently. Erdogan blamed Fethullah Gulen for 2014 corruption investigations. There were mass, a string of corruption investigations that went to the heart of AKP rule and in fact touched upon himself and his family and his son. So all of those policemen and prosecutors and judges are now in jail, but he, believe, he, believe, he, he, he does think they were Gulenists. They were people who used to brief Erdogan regularly. They were p- people who brought in to power by Erdogan, and uh, I have to assume that they are followers of Fethullah Gülen too. But here's the in- interesting thing. How do you prove from, in a court of law, how do you prove that, for example, they were taking orders from Fethullah Gülen, or how do you prove that they were acting in uh, unison? And these are some of the challenges uh, when Erdogan tries to get United States to extradite Fethullah Gülen. They've been asking for evidence and Turkish authorities have been giving them pages and pages of uh, arguments, but very hard to find solid evidence that would stand in a court of law in terms of these people's connections to Fethullah Gülen. So 2000, but going back to your question, it was the 2014 corruption investigations that ended the alliance. So Jeremy, do you think that the Americans are going to uh, extradite Fethullah Gulen? I would be very surprised to see them um, extradite Fethullah Gulen. If, if the Turks did come up with very, very solid evidence that he was related to the coup or to other nefarious doings within Turkey, I suppose that the U.S. government would consider it. But I think, as Azza was implying, that's very unlikely. It's, um, it's unlikely in part because it's just unlikely that such evidence exists. Even, even, if, there, even if this was a Gulenist-inspired coup, the, the Gulenists operate in a more uh, inchoate fashion than that, and it's very unlikely that there is any sort of um, smoking gun that would stand up in an American court. Moreover, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that Gulen is a, is a very sick 77-year-old man, and uh, the idea that the United States is going to send him back to Turkey into all of the conspiracy theories and... Um, British government sent Pinochet back to, to Chile, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. You, I think that, that commentary speaks for itself, but I think it took them years to send Pinochet back. Um, I, think, I think the idea that we would send Fethullah Gulen on, on uh, that kind of slight evidence is, is very unlikely. And what, so, but we are, uh, as we speak, uh, John Kerry is in Brussels meeting up with European foreign ministers Lots of concern is being expressed about the, the, the counter coup. People are asking, uh, urging moderation on uh, the Turkish president. How, how do you think this is going to play out? Because obviously um, the uh, reaction has been quite extreme to the, uh, to, to the coup. Um, and it comes after a period of time when people are increasingly worried about centralising power closing down of newspapers, other kinds of autocratic tendencies within uh, within Turkey. But the Brits, sorry, the, the Europeans um, depend heavily on, on Turkey for refugee reasons. The American war against ISIS uh, is somewhat 
dependent on on Turkish cooperation, uses Turkish air bases, and uh, Turkey's obviously a key ally. How, how do you think they're going to calibrate their criticism? Yeah, look, I think we've seen this movie many times before. It's all it's always a bit depressing, but um, when some when there is a sort of authoritarian crackdown in a country, either because there's a successful coup or an unsuccessful coup. Uh, and when it's in a key U.S. security partner, you see expressions of concern, you see urges of calm and stability, you see claims, as, as Kerry did in his news conference today, that they, will be, that they will be closely scrutinizing the country for democratic norms. But in the end, uh, there's really not too much that the United States, or Europe for that matter, can do to get involved in um, and improve that kind of domestic political situation, particularly in a country where uh, the United States has a lot of security interests and is really unwilling to sacrifice those security interests on the altar of, um, of uh, this type of domestic political upheaval. And Asit, what do you think the Turkish response will be if um, other countries are too critical? Because obviously this is... Uh, existential for Erdogan, you know, he was, they did try and kill him from what you were saying. So it's not like it's a, a, a kind of minor incident. And he uh, does seem to be increasingly uh, uh, concerned about about actions against him. He has been cracking down in, in various different ways and seems pretty um, uh, uh, increasingly intolerant of any uh, uh, questioning of his authority. He reacted very strongly when uh, protesters uh, started to, to gather in Gezi Park a, a couple of years ago. Um, wh- how do you think he'll react to, to this? I'm afraid this really feeds into the narrative um, that the entire world led by the United States is united behind an effort to topple Erdogan regime. And this narrative has been used extensively, and I think the Turkish president does believe it to an extent, during the Gezi uprising, and again during the corruption investigations. And now uh, he, my sense is that he sincerely believes that United States was somewhat, somewhere behind the effort. Uh, he, you don't need much evidence for beliefs, and I think it was enough, for example, that uh, one of the F-16s that were flying on Friday nights were refueled, uh, were able to refuel in the Interlik base, a key base on southern Turkey used in the fight against ISIS, and a key NATO base. So uh, the head of the Turkish head of the base, Turkish commander of the base, had been arrested. But I think this kind of stuff is enough uh, to uh, convince. An already uh, an already converted crowd into believing that there is a global effort to unseat uh, an Islamic leader, and I think that uh, the relationship this will take its toll. The first month will be more difficult, but I am assuming that within a month or two, when Erdogan feels a bit more safe, he too might tone down and uh, actually. Uh, realize, as it has happened with after Gezi and the corruption investigations, and realize that the relationship with the United States is actually rather valuable to Turkey. And I think you know, the United States will have to live with a Turkey that looks a lot, a whole lot different than what they know. It possibly more autocratic, definitely more Islamic. Uh, already, we're seeing signs of that, and this has been happening for sure for some time, but uh, now having 
basically defeated the coup, the party base, the conservative AKP base, feels very triumphant and, and does want a different state. So what's going to happen in the, in the short term? I mean, do you think he, he might start um, uh, refusing to use, to allow the US to use Intralik in, in the fight against ISIS if he, if he feels uh, uh, that threatened? Or, or might he try and bu- bully the Europeans by opening the borders again? Obviously, there's been a kind of big drop in the number of, um, of, 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 of migrants coming through Turkey. I don't see an immediate impact on the refugee issue, but I, in terms of the fight against ISIS, I think Turkey would be more reluctant to carry on the fight. And I think there will be a, a, a shortage of human resources in terms of the military's capability in the fight against ISIS. Secondly, uh, restrictions on Injirlik term are a possibility, definitely. Injirlik base is not irreplaceable for the coalition. They can do what they are doing in Syria and Iraq. Uh, using aircraft carriers, but it's a whole lot more costly and time-consuming. But uh, I think we're going to see uh, perhaps um, less and less cooperation uh, initially in the fight against ISIS, because Turkey may feel, given all of this, why should it take on the fight against ISIS and make itself open yet another front when it's fight- so busy fighting internal enemies? Um, I think that that's I think that that's right. It is important to remember, however, that um, the Insulik base was really only opened up for the fight against ISIS uh, about I think it was about a year ago. Uh, yeah, and uh, and of course the reason it took so long for the U.S. to get Turkey to agree to the use of that base was because they never they weren't really all that on board with the um, with the ISIS fight and the tensions that Azza has mentioned were already in place. So uh, and actually, what happened I think was less that the uh, that the Turkish government became convinced of the enduring friendship of the U.S. government or became convinced that they should make a priority of the ISIS war. But rather that the U.S. government um, took the took the tact that um, if if the Turks didn't help them on ISIS, they would have no choice but to go to the Kurds. They would have no choice but to continue supplying Syrian Kurds to fight ISIS, Iraqi Kurds to fight ISIS, um, and that 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 put a lot of pressure on the Turkish government uh, to be more cooperative on the ISIS fight. So I think that what you're going to see is a sort of another round of that, uh, that, uh, as Azza was saying, that the, the, the Turkish government will pull back in its ISIS fight. The U.S. government will feel the need to play the Kurdish card again and will go through another round. These things are quite damaging. But it's, it, I'm not exactly sure how this one will come out. We do know that in the, la- the last time, as Azza said, the Turkish government suddenly decided that the U.S., relationship was important and that the um, and that it could trade Inserlik for a reduced U.S. commitment to the Kurds. As to what's the domestic, the long-term domestic consequences, because there are obviously millions of people who are strong supporters of President Erdogan. Um, hundreds of thousands will show up uh, to demonstrate on different things or, or thousands will, will kind of show up at rallies when he's speaking. He is, by a long margin, the most popular politician in Turkey. But there are a lot of people who uh, regard him as uh, an authoritarian leader who are troubled by the Islamization of, of, of Turkish politics and Turkish society. 
And um, it is in, in many ways a, a deeply divided country where you have these parallel um, uh, turkeys that, that, that live together and uh, that vote uh, in, in fundamentally different ways. Could there be a, a kind of secularist backlash against this? Could we see uh, a kind of return to some of the activism that we saw erupt in the Gezi protests as a, uh, if, if he does um, crack down too heavily as a result of the coup? We could, Mark, except I think uh, what happened in Gezi did not have core AKP supporters or Islamists on the streets. And now they are on the streets for the first time. And they're feeling very confident and uh, basically controlling the streets. So I don't think the secularists would dare get out. I do not know. And there certainly are suggestions that we are so polarized and continue to be that this is heading for more sort of social, you know, social tensions could head towards clashes. But uh, what I saw on Friday night was secularists and Kurds and Alevites were too afraid to get out on the streets. And so they did not really oppose the coup, not to say that they supported it or would have welcomed it, because I think they would have been divided. The other 50% would have been divided internally in terms of what they think of the coup. But, but all the main parties did come out and, uh, and condemn it. But was, so was that partly out of self-preservation because they want to... to... So because, you know, everybody would be against an unfa- a failed coup. <laughs> the, the unknown unknown support this had to be successful uh, so Those are uh, words to live by <laughs> but I think what we're going to see domestically is well, polarization will continue possibly you know Erdogan's attempt the desire for an overhaul of the system to a US style presidential system and a new constitution was put on hold because there just weren't enough votes either in parliament or with the uh, in terms of the population polls were showing you know 38 40% support for that that may change now with this whole mobilization effort i mean it, the, the coup we're fighting the coup the danger is still there this is the only chance we need to change the system would be a valid argument that he might actually sort of push for a referendum later this year uh, the other thing is, I think is he's going to rely more and more on the party itself, the party structures for the state mechanism. You are seeing that you know, a significant portion of the Turkish state now with judges, prosecutors, governors are being emptied out. You do need people to run the country. And I think the loyal, the, 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 <laughs> the, the group that you can rely on is essentially the party. That's the lesson Erdogan has gotten from this. It, it's the Islamists, it's the those that would heed a call from a minaret, from a mosque, and go out on the streets that have effectively saved his regime. He's going to allow room for them within the state, I think. And this is not good news for Turkish, Turkey's secularists who already feel, feel sidelined. Um, as long as they get to live peacefully in their own secular ghettos, this would be fine. They would not have, they would have less and less of a say, I think, in the state mechanisms, in the judiciary, in structures. You know, the other day, yesterday, there was a uh, in the funeral of uh, the one of the uh, civilians slain uh, and civilians killed on Friday night. I noticed that Imam, you know, this was broadcast live. The Imam said, "Save us from the wrath of the learned." 
of the educated. And I do think that this kind of sentiment, anti-elite, anti-secularism, will now be the main discourse. Sounds almost as bad as Britain, where um, we were told that we'd had enough of experts during the referendum campaign. Jeremy, what's your last thoughts on on what's happening at the moment and what the long-term consequences will be for, for the West? Yeah, I'm troubled by the last um, the last discussion, which sort of demonstrated that um, in uh, in Turkey and in elsewhere, expertise is really not seen in a very good light. That that seems like it's troubling for my job prospects as well as all of ours, um, based on the assumption that I'm an expert. And I do think that there is a there is a, an interesting from it's a, something from which a, you tried to subvert with your podcast appearances. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm doing a pretty good job of that. Yeah, I I think that there is something here. Um, from a from a U.S. and a European perspective, one of the problems that the United States has had in dealing with Turkey is is incapacity in the government apparatus. is It is a weak bureaucracy, um, and uh, and and the and the military itself is was although one of the strongest ones is is also weaker than it than it should be. Um, and uh, this destruction of expertise within the Turkish bureaucracy is going to make that problem a lot worse. Uh, the truth of the matter is, as Azza said earlier, that the Gulenists, whoever they were, seem to be the sort of core of technocratic expertise within the government and, and maybe even within the military. I don't know. Um, and if these people are purged out, uh, as they have continually been in the last few years, one has to worry whether the Turkish state will actually be able to do anything that it wants to do, including, from a U.S. perspective, participate, whether it wants to or not, in the anti-ISIS struggle. Okay, well, uh, we'll keep watching the situation. I'm sure we're going to come back and, and talk more about it. But that was a fascinating discussion. And I'm really pleased to uh, hear that you're you're safe and well and that you've managed to survive uh, this coup and, and that you've managed to keep us so well informed while it was going on, Asla. Um, we've got one more thing to do on this podcast, which is the, the bookshelf segment. So, um, Asla, do you want to go first? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I just finished a biography of Cleopatra. Very, very interesting. Um, very interesting because there's a whole lot to there's a whole lot to Cleopatra than just sort of the the historic notion, the stereotype that she was a nymph who seduced Caesar and then Mark Anthony. The uh, this power changes in Eastern Mediterranean uh, and the fight in the power structures thousands of 2,000 years ago have, of course, changed significantly. But the way power works and alliances and falling outs and all of that works and wars is still the same 2,000 years later. The methodology might be different, but the essence of it, essence of power has not changed all that much. Oh, well, I thought things were bad <laughs> already, but that, that's, uh, that's quite a scary thought. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? <laughs> Well, uh, embarrassingly, I'm still reading the book that we that I discussed last week, Michelle Hulebeck's submission. So, but I'll skip over that because next on next on my bookshelf is uh, the Dream of Scipio by Ian Pears, um, which is a book I actually have read before. But it's about um, people's reactions to the fall of civilization uh, in at, at a few different points in history, including uh, right at the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and how people deal with the collapse of civilizations around them. And for some reason, uh, in the past couple of weeks, that has seemed increasingly relevant to me. So I thought I would uh, take it up again. 
God, I remember reading Somnium Scipionis when I was doing Latin in, in, in high school, uh, which was in the deep, distant, uh, not quite back in Cleopatra's time, but it was a long <laughs> time ago. Um, for my bookshelf, I have to say, the thing which has been gripping me the most has been Asler's um, emails from... Uh, <laughs> from Turkey over the weekend. And I'm very pleased to say that I think we're going to have a public version of some of these emails um, up in the in the next few hours. So it's uh, it's Monday uh, at the moment. So I think later on today, there'll be uh, a, a version of, of Asla's analysis. So I strongly recommend that. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please uh, go to iTunes, give us a review or a, or a ranking. Um, it really helps bring people to the website. Do the same on SoundCloud or MixCloud. Why don't you post about it on your Facebook page or write something on our own Facebook page or tweet about it. Um, we hope that you've been enjoying it. If you uh, have any comments on this or any suggestions for topics for future podcasts, please feel free to write to me as well at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Asla Aiden Tashbash, uh, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azinaro. <laughs>